Welcome to the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. This is a place where radical ideas and methods are discussed in the quest towards freedom making. It is a space to dialogue, share, and learn about revolutionary politics, political struggles, radical solidarities, cultural resistance, healing justice, and is a crossing to unearth legacies of resistance pedagogies, global radicalism, and internationalism. I'm your host, Chani Desai, and if you like this episode, please subscribe. Hello listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. Today our guest is Dr. Nadine Neighbor. Dr. Nadine Neighbor is a scholar activist and professor in gender and women's studies and global Asian studies, as well as the interim director of the Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She has authored or co-edited five books, Arab America, Gender, Cultural Politics and Activism, Race and Arab Americans, Arab and Arab American Feminisms, The Color of Violence and Towards the Sun. Dr. Neighbor is the co-founder of Arab and Muslim American Studies at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, the Arab American Cultural Center at UIC, Mamas Activating Movements for Abolition and Solidarity and Liberate Your Research. This is a humble introduction to Nadine. There is so, so much more that she has done, continues to do, and will do in the future. Um, Nadine, it is truly an honor to be in conversation with you today. It is such an honor. I'm so grateful to you, Shani, for inviting me to your fabulous show. So, you know, um, Nadine, while you embody so much knowledge and can speak to so many topics, Today, I would like for us to focus on your project, Liberate Your Research. Through coaching and virtual workshops, you train radical scholars and thinkers around the world in liberating their theory and methods from the constraints of academic disciplines. Most recently, in a blog post, you wrote that, I quote, interdisciplinary activist scholars face disproportionate levels of overwhelm and anxiety in academia. Lacking go-to theories or theoretical blueprints contributes to these challenges, compounding matters, fields like cultural studies, ethnic studies, and or gender studies often lack training in how to claim and name your theoretical approach and interventions. The struggle to name and claim our ideas can lead to confusion over where our interventions begin or end. Even worse, we second guess our ideas over anticipating and internalizing our readers' potential critiques. For this reason, you have created trainings which seek to help people liberate themselves and their research in order to transform the violence of these systems into writing, prosperity, joy, and social change. So can you tell us, Nadine, uh, more about Liberate Your Research and just walk us through your journey and describe what has really inspired Liberate Your Research? Thank you so much for that great question and introduction. The journey to found Liberate Your Research started long ago, um, maybe 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a first generation college student um, and I was an activist before I went to graduate school. Um, And so the experiences I had becoming a graduate student, you know, are at the core of what led me to start Liberate My Research. When I, I I always had, you know, collective in-depth analyses that came out of my collective work as an activist with Arab feminist and queer activists, leftist Arab movements, women of color movements, all in the Bay Area of California, as well as in Egypt where I was living um, in earlier days. Um, And so then when I went to graduate school though, um, 
you know, over time I started believing that I could not think, mm. that I had nothing to say. Um, and it was because I, I was recruited to join a department as part of a diversity initiative to diversify the program. And when I got there, there were three students of color uh, in a sea of whiteness. Mm. Um, and, and I was repeatedly told things like, well, what is your theoretical framework when I didn't know what a theoretical framework meant? Mm. Um, and, and these questions that, you know, we're, we're forced to frame our thoughts in these structures that might not align with how, you know, how I was thinking or the communities that I come from think about analysis and scholarship. Mm. Um, and it was as if, you know, if we can't frame our work using the same uh, structures as, uh, you know, elite white men, then we have nothing to say. So, you know, I was even told I was committing academic suicide with my research project. And really, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about all of these stories, but generally there was a environment that was colonialist and racist, and it played out in the ways that uh, my peers, other graduate students who um, embodied and practiced these racist, um, you know, ways of doing research, like, uh, you know, uh, colonizing people in order to uh, extract knowledge mm -hmm. for your academic career, um, those types of behaviors were rewarded. Mm. Um, and those of us who were striving to be accountable to our activist communities or the communities that we're from were being punished for being activists, um, denied funding or, you know, constructed as if we were not real scholars. Right. And there was so much else, you know, there was the fact that I um, write about and I'm active on Palestinian liberation. So there was censorship and attacks that I experienced by Zionist groups that didn't want me to exist as a scholar. Mm. Um, so over time, I started learning about the what you know now people call the academic industrial complex, a place that really has you know there's no accountability, um, and that's very much inter that 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 participates in the oppression of so many of our people through its you know um, participation in militarism, creating the surveillance strategies that police our communities to so many other you know things that basically send the message that the university is a corporate institution and first and foremost mm. um, and long story short is then I was a professor at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and I had a lovely fabulous group of colleagues and comrades maybe you know 17 radical lefty uh, professors of color. And in my 10 years there, nearly every single one of those people was either denied tenure or pushed out of academia. Wow. So it was that experience um, of violence where all of us collectively learned that the way radical scholars get pushed out of academia, um, the way it works is that the, uh, you know, those in power basically target our methodologies. Mm. Um, and, and the way that that works is that if you're going to do, you know, radical feminist of color research, you're you you're using an intersectional lens that's about uh, intersecting forms of power, multiplicity of experiences, um, and the multiple ways that empire and racism, you know, oppress people on the margins. Um, and by nature, that work is going to be interdisciplinary, mm. right? And so, it, it to me, it's that it's that it's that part of it 
that um, becomes the target of the attack in academia. Um, and so, you know, from there, I, so the more I started thinking about that, I had my own healing to do uh, from all the violence that I had experienced. Um, and I always, you know, did that collectively with others. So through that process of healing, which entailed practices, you know, that I began implementing in my own life that um, helped me realize, you know, that I, that I and all of us um, have within us a well of resources, right? That come mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. ourselves that we were born with that go far beyond our, you know, just our, you know, our own life experience, um, you know, that we can tap into that are connected to others, you know, to the universe, to um, our histories. Um, and uh, that, so there was healing that led me to this place and also having mentors right. um, who helped me understand this, you know, whole piece I said about methodology um, and all of us together learned how to name and claim our methodologies. Um, and then um, in addition to that, uh, I just uh, realized that, that the more, so I, I, I'm often invited to give lectures and I started integrating some of this into my public speaking. Mm. And I started noticing that people really wanted to hear more about this. They wanted to hear more about um, methodology, women of color methodology. So I started teaching workshops, um, feminists of color methodologies, activist research, and, and learning that, wow, you know, so many of us are really struggling. It wasn't just me. Mm. Um, and then I found that, um, so I started uh, talking with people. Actually, I did a research project uh, where I started talking with people about what they go through when they do research. And I was incredibly, blown away to find out that when I would ask, say, a group of radical scholars of color, you know, about the anxiety, whether they face anxiety, and I listed anxieties like imposter syndrome, overwhelm, um, that, you know, the idea that I have nothing to say, or the fear that your research will contribute to violence and colonization, I would be in a room with 30 people and every single person would raise their hand and say they didn't just experience one of these anxieties, but they experienced all of them. And then I started asking people how much time they spend in these anxieties. And people would say things like, well, first let me say the kinds of words people would say when they would talk about their overwhelm and anxiety in academia were words like torture, complete despair, um, I, I'm a failure. I mean, you know, um, and then, so then I started asking people how much time they spend. It turned out they spend most of their time mm -hmm. in these feelings. I mean, some people said it, it could go on for a whole week. Um, others would say 50% of their writing time, they would be struggling with overwhelm. And then I realized that if, well, how are we going to create ideas that, you know, anxiety is a, um, obstructs creativity. So if you're stuck in anxiety, how are you going to um, be creative and create? Um, and so, you know, these are some of the things that led me to say, you know, I need to do this in a more intentional way mm -hmm. where um, I just claim that I am working with people collectively to work through these issues. And so when I created Liberate, My, Liberate Your Research, the whole idea of it was to integrate healing with name and claiming your methodologies. Cause I, I believe that we need both of those practices to liberate our research. 
I mean, what you've said resonates so deeply, you know, in terms of just um, my own process and um, and hearing my colleagues and and so many radical scholars around me who not only describe what the words that you use to describe their own experiences, but also many, many people get sick and actually have to leave academia, right? So in, in so many ways, I think this is such an important project that you're doing. And I'm, I'm just glad that it, it the, here is something finally that we can all tap into. And so I remember Nadine, when I saw your um, post about it, I, I had done one of the workshops uh, with you and it was incredibly transformative. And part of what was transformative was your pedagogical approach um, during the session, uh, which also seems very deeply rooted in feminist, specifically women of color feminisms and decolonizing methodologies. And so I'm just wondering what intellectual and political traditions have shaped your own scholarship and radical decolonial anti-racist feminist pedagogy and praxis? Thank you so much for that. Um, well, I guess first and foremost, it would be socialist and decolonial Arab feminism or feminism from you know, the Arab region in North Africa, um, as well as queer critiques um, that I became familiar with after um, I was first grounded in the feminist approaches. Um, and what those approaches did for me is that they helped me understand that gender injustices um, that I was aware of in the, uh, you know, the Arab region where I'm from and North Africa, um, that these gender injustices were shaped in the context of uh, global capitalism, imperialism, authoritarianism, which is backed by US empire and the framework of the nation state. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just really liberatory for me to, you know, see gender in the context of these uh, structural forces because even though I'm from that part of the world, I was raised in the United States and I had to undo my own um, internalized oppression that, uh, you know, as a kid, I believe that the reason there was gender injustices in both my immigrant community and in the Arab world was because of our culture or our religion, mm -hmm. um, which isn't to say that, you know, cultural sensibilities don't play a role, but they're, you know, as we know, they're shaped within context, political and historical context. So, so that's one that, um, and then, uh, Early on in, in my activism, I was fortunate to be part of um, feminist of color coalitions. And so that would be the other um, intellectual tradition, uh, which would be woman of color feminism or feminism of color. Um, and especially through uh, organizations like the Woman of Color Resource Center, where you had people like Linda Burnham, who were part of the third world, um, third world, Women's Alliance um, and the formation of intersectionality um, back in, you know, especially the 1970s, um, that we're already seeing the world through a transnational feminist lens, um, connecting feminist struggles across the globe around uh, the framework of joint struggle um, and connecting what's happening within the US to the impact of US and European policies um, on communities across the globe. And so, my approach has always been coalitional, um, mm -hmm. which basically for me, like, you know, when I think of the war on terror, for example, 
I, you know, I believe that if we address the war on terror coalitionally, more and more people will be free because, mm -hmm. for example, we would then see that the um, problems with militarism um, are very much wrapped up in the problems of policing that target, say, uh, you know, black women and queer and transgender people in the U.S. Um, so this kind of joint struggle approach, I think, um, very much shapes how I think and is essential to who I am. And I was able to develop that analysis through my activism in the movement Insight, um, Women and Gender Nonconforming People Against Violence. Um, and so I think those frameworks very much contribute to my work and shape my work in Liberate Your Research, um, which, you know, all of those positions uh, um, center upon a critique of the nation state mm. um, and not only racism, but the, the violent nature of the US in terms of its foundation as a settler colonialist state um, and how that frame, the frame um, is also expansionist, um, mm -hmm. which helps us uh, understand you know, the US as an empire. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we can think of the, what happens within the U.S. and globally within that framework. Um, and that that's kind of where I come from, um, and, and which helps me make the connections across the struggles of Palestine and Black struggle in the U.S., um, Indigenous struggle, um, immigrant justice, et cetera. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I'm just wondering how you integrate then, you know, because this is such a... Uh, vast sort of body of, of both uh, analytics and methodology and, and theory that how do you then integrate some of these traditions into Liberate Your Research? Uh, and how do they perhaps shape the workshops that you're uh, conducting or the coaching that you do with individuals? Um, yeah, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, well, one of the big pieces I learned from Insight, for example, is that we don't just wanna, uh, focus our organizing on what we don't want. Like mm -hmm. we don't just wanna do a really amazing critique of, you know, how, um, why women of color might not feel comfortable calling the police for help in a case of domestic violence, you know, because the cops might shoot you or your loved ones when they show up. Um, you know, that's a pretty well established like feminist of color critique about gender violence, right? Um, but we also want to think about what we do want. Mm -hmm. um, and think about what world we wanna build. Um, and so in Inside, I was able to learn from, um, you know, um, indigenous and black feminist organizers um, who now, you know, uh, frame this framework as uh, abolition, feminist mm -hmm. abolition. Um, and so that, that frame really helped me think about the question of accountability. You know, like if we think of um, the prison industrial complex as connected up with the academic industrial complex as a neoliberal institution that exploits people and exploits their labor, et cetera, et cetera, um, and for the purpose of profit, profit. And so if we think about how do we liberate us, you know, from the constraints of academia, um, part of it is to think about um, also to think about how our, if we are gonna exist in an academic setting, are we being accountable? to the communities, to the social movements that some of us might be writing about or with. Um, and so I think that's the link between my Liberate Your Research workshops and my activist history mm. that is very much rooted in the principle of community accountability. And so one of the things that I think about 
so I think there's two things that I bring from my activism into my Liberate Your Research. Um, one is this, um, you know, what I've been talking about of naming and claiming our own methodologies on our own terms. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one, you know, and I, I think that, you know, for me, I've learned to, um, you know, think about uh, radical feminist and queer um, movement methodologies, the, the methodology, for example, of joint struggle, or if we think of, um, we can even talk about intersectionality obviously came from the movement framework of double jeopardy or triple jeopardy. Um, and so I think like thinking of not having to define our research methodologies by only by methodologies you learn from the university. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I train people in my workshops, um, I train people around uplifting the methodologies that we already know mm -hmm. from our cultural sensibilities, from our social movements, uh, from our uh, families, our loved ones, our chosen families. Uh, we are wells of resources. We have all these insights. Um, and so I encourage people to integrate what they already know and who they already are collectively with what we learn from the university rather than just reacting to these theories that are imposed upon us by this institution. So that's one. And then the second way that I integrate these traditions into my um, workshops is that I've actually come up with um, what I call the three R's of um, the three R's of uh, liberated research. Um, and one of them is revolutionary, mm -hmm. which means that it, it, that has a lot to do with how we can ensure or commit to doing our research for the purpose of social change. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my workshops, I teach about um, how we can do research that is aligned with the needs of social movements. Um, and then the second R is relational, which you know is similar to coalitional. You know, that I train people around how to avoid thinking of your research topic in single issue terms, mm. but instead that you know, our, what we study is always interconnected with other struggles and to not lose sight of that. Uh, we end up maybe falling into oppression Olympics or mm -hmm. competitive ways of thinking about our projects. Um, and the third R is responsible. And that's where I teach about community accountability mm -hmm. in research. How do you do research? How do you build relationships that can be accountable to the people that your work represents? Wow, um, you know, these three R's are certainly uh, a, an amazing toolkit. You know, when I think about just toolkits that we need sometimes to remember um, in the field, like when you're even collecting data uh, and you're trying to be accountable to the epistemologies and ontologies of our own communities and, and people that exactly like the, the three R's you highlighted, you know, uh, thinking about revolutionary aspects of how this research can be transformative, relationality and responsibility should be these, these really important principles that uh, fundamentally are about, you know, research that is committed to community. So um, I just kind of want to transition to then thinking about this uh, I believe statement that you have on your website, because I imagine that that I believe statement has also come out of your little toolkit um, or vice versa. Um, and, you know, when I read your I believe statement on your website, I found it incredibly powerful because you say 
I believe every person has a theory. I help people claim and name their ideas. And I know you just uh, named or shared a little bit about that, but um, can you share more about this I believe statement and ways you work with people, again, uh, to basically name these ideas even, even more specifically? Thanks, Shani, that's such a great question. Um, well, well, at the center of my workshops is, um, and my work with Liberate Your Research um, is this idea that we all need to stop giving our power away. You know, um, you know that comes from experiences of trauma, you know, in academia that uh, where we feel that, you know, where we start lacking a sense of self-worth, um, putting other people's ideas on a pedestal, giving them more values than our own. Um, and so my I believe statement is really represents my standpoint um, or one of the principles of this work, which is basically uh, supporting people in uplifting what they already know um, into their, uh, the way they approach their research. Um, and one of the ways that I do that is I ask people to think outside of the box mm -hmm. of the way we are usually trained to think about our projects because it can become habitual to try to force our research to fit into these, say for example, when someone says, what is your theoretical framework or what is your argument, you know? Um, these kinds of questions can actually um, create more obstruction of our creativity than help us to figure out what our argument is. Um, and so what I do is I try to come up with other writing exercises where people just basically talk with each other about what they actually believe about their topic, you know? And, and I say, you know, this isn't a paper, it's not a, you know, conference presentation, it's not a journal article, it's just well, what do you actually think about your topic? You know, it's something as simple as that can actually support someone to basically come up with what the intervention of their book is going to be because they actually probably knew all along, mm. but the way that they were asked, you know, um, might not have opened up that possibility to claim, you know, their intervention. So I think that's a big one. And then I also really encourage people to make stuff up um, mm -hmm. because. And, and part of why I do that is because a lot of radical scholars of color are doing unconventional research projects. Um, we don't often have a blueprint for how to do this work. Um, and so rather than perceiving that as a sign that you, know, you don't know how to do research, um, instead it should be a, um, what is it called? A prompt to create, you know? Um, and so that's why I say just, you already know what you're going to say. You, you just need to give it a name. Um, and so I really spend a lot of time working with people to name their ideas. Um, so that's, that's also a big one for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about this as a pedagogical approach, you know, because this is also about pedagogy, this podcast. What is really um, exciting about this as a pedagogical research is that, uh, or a pedagogical approach, is it's trying to make knowledge production legible to people who have written us out of history right and to, has written so many communities and people's histories out of out of histories and while social movements are trying to shape and shift discourses particularly in these times i see the urgency of this because more and more i think what is also happening in the streets is impacting the institution right like 
universities are going to have to reckon with what anti-racism is in this moment in a way that perhaps it hasn't. I know we're seeing that in Canada. So this is also going to open up, I think, spaces for a lot of radical ideas that students are bringing, right? And I think social media culture is also doing that. So what perhaps existed 10 years ago or 15 years ago, like I remember when I came to academia 10 years ago, it was perhaps a bit different, but in this moment, like all the students I get already have so much that they're coming with and, 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 and language yeah. from social movements like abolition that you mentioned, that it just makes me think about how this pedagogical approach then can further uplift, you know, um, what's happening. And that helps me sort of, you know, bring you to the next question around these times where the world is imploding crisis after crisis, uh, be it workers demanding fair wages, sick leave, or racial justice movements demanding the abolition of prisons and defunding the police, populism on the rise, legitimizing white supremacy and fascism, ongoing capitalist heteropatriarchal violence, continuing to dispossess, oppress, exploit, and kill people around the world, specifically amid this pandemic. And so while we also see vibrant resistance, folks are so exhausted, they're tired, and I know um, scholars are, you know, also anxious about their writing and research in this climate um, and whether it really matters. Um, and so I'm just wondering how radical scholars and thinkers can utilize your training uh, in Liberate Your Research to really motivate themselves, to embolden themselves, especially in these times as people are really looking for a space, you know, because this is not just yeah. a pedagogical approach, but a space. Yeah, I love that so much. Well, as a space, you know, the workshops create community. Um, people meet each other there. They form relationships um, with each other. Um, so it's it's very much a, a, you know, in a way, an attempt to create an alternative space outside of the university. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I I try to think about it as. A, a space for scholars to name and claim their ideas on their own terms, you know, like we've been saying, without allowing the toxic, racist, heteropatriarchal, militarized system of academia to determine um, and structure, to determine the value of our ideas, but also to structure how we do our work um, and how we frame it, um, where our ideas come from. Um, and, and I think it's also a space to just, you know, because, the, the journey to heal and liberate ourselves um, from the academic industrial complex, you know, also requires awareness. Mm. Um, you know, some people call it just um, healing. Uh, one, one part of healing in any situation of trauma is noticing, you know, so it, it's also just a space to be able to notice um, that exploitation that we've been, um, you know, um, targeted by, um, and, and it could be anything. It can even be um, talking about and working through the pressure to become a workaholic um, and to never take breaks and to feel like if you don't kill yourself, then you're a failure, yeah. you know? I mean, these are also very capitalist ways of thinking. Um, and I, I've been inspired by many other people. A lot of what I'm saying, you know, I didn't create these analyses all on my own, um, I mean, this whole idea of being a workaholic, you know, comes from in academia, this whole pressure to uh, be a perfectionist, to uh, never good enough, you know, always in competition over resources. Um, 
in fact, Dean Spade um, shared ideas with me about this and uh, ended up writing about, also wrote about these ideas in their book, Mutual Aid, about mm. um, these ideas that actually come from the uh, Workaholics Anonymous uh, a support group that where they write about working uh, compulsively versus working joyfully. Mm. Um, you know, these are all just small. So those are like on the small scale, just to notice what ha happens to us in this you know, toxic space. Um, and then also to think about what are alternatives? What are other possibilities and other ways that we could do our work? Um, so, and then I think also the idea of, um, a, a lot of people say about my workshops that they, they I, I can't remember the word is, but they, they reveal secrets of mm -hmm. academia, you know? And so I, I also like that because it's, um, you know, there are so many things we're not taught Mm -hmm. um, and students with privilege, you know, um, already know. Um, and so a lot of the overwhelm comes from just never having the opportunity to have access to that knowledge or information or training. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, um, well, what does theory actually mean? Or um, what is methodology, you know, or um, how do you write a paper? <laughs> you know, how do you uh, take notes, you know, whatever it is. So I think those are also things that I work on a lot in the workshops. Um, around uh, just sharing things that that people don't talk about, um, uh, that faculty usually don't talk about. And another one would be just what we talked about, which is talking about activist methodologies. Um, you know, we really don't get enough of that. Um, so that's another thing I think people come to the workshops for is to just share ideas. And um, it's in a way like legitimizing mm. the idea of scholarship that's embedded in social movements, which is really different than saying scholarship that contributes to social movements. Right, right. Um, yeah, that 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 also resonates deeply because exactly it, it's it it comes from a decolonizing perspective, not you know not just about what you're giving, yeah. but rather, yeah. Um, so, you know, I just want to. Uh, take us to the last question. Um, Nadine, you are one of the most fierce, fear, you're one of the most fierce, committed, humble, and generous scholar activists I've ever met. Uh, you've been involved with so many social justice movements and struggles locally and transnationally, and you support so many towards uh, their own liberation, be it, you know, children, be it mothers, um, you know, uh, whoever. And in your journey towards freedom, uh, I'd love to hear about what you, what liberation means to you and how you conceptualize that. Yeah, I have a lot to say about this. Uh, <laughs> um, well, when I think about liberation for me, I think uh, of a few different parts, right? I mean, of course, you know, there's probably many, um, I mean, there's structural forces that I think about, you know, like uh, decolonization, liberation from the prison and military industrial complexes, um, liberation from the nation state, um, from heteropatriarchy. Uh, but I also think about, um, you know, being part of a world or communities that support relationship building and caring for each other. Um, and I want to just take that actually a little further because those are kind of become like buzzwords today, um, collective love, collective care. Um, 
and and I think I'll share a little bit about how I think about some of these things. I mean, I think because I think that on the one hand, there's a need for us to, and I this is what I do in my workshops, is to turn inwards mm -hmm. into ourselves and um, become more comfortable with drawing upon our own insights and our inner our knowledge and our inner power that has been taken away from us oftentimes in the academic industrial complex. But I want to be clear that it's not an individualist approach, that it's in connection to others um, in, in through a collective framing of turning inwards. Um, so I thought I could talk about that a little bit um, and maybe go out on a limb and, and use the word being in vibration with each other. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I think about liberation, I, I think it, in addition to the structural that we talked about, I, I, I think that it it also needs to entail um, harmony mm. with one another. Um, and I use the word harmony because I think it helps to think about academia that, um, you know, some of us are trying to be in harmony with a system that is inharmonious. Mm, mm. Um, that you'll, you'll never find harmony with, uh, you know, a broken, toxic, violent system. Um, so then the question is like, for me, liberation um, on the level of, you know, myself in community with others, which is essential um, to me is so much about um, finding harmony in, in collectivity. And, and so what does that mean? And, and for me, it means that, you know, I, I do believe that we're much more than our physical selves that we're connected through like energy and vi the vibrations we put out into the world. And I, I actually teach this in my workshops. In my workshops about scholarship, I teach about um, what we put out into the world. Um, and I, 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 I really believe that um, we, our thoughts um, work as intentions and you know, whether we're aware of them or not. Um, and what I do in Liberate Your Research is I work with people on um, being more aware of what the intentions are that they're putting out into the world. Mm. Because what we put out into the world in a way contributes to the future that we're creating for ourselves and for our collectives and for others. Um, and so it does matter to be aware of our thoughts and emotions, um, especially when our thoughts and emotions often can be in a pretty rotten state um, when we're experiencing all these traumas uh, and lack of self-worth, right? So it's really important for me to work with people to integrate practices that can help us connect with our inner power and our collective power and open up that possibility to dive into that well of our inner resources um, and our collective resources. So the question then is, for me about liberation is one of the questions at the core of how I think of liberation is how do we put ourselves out there yeah. and how can we take responsibility for our emotions, right? Because if we're in a state of worry or anxiety, we're putting out vibrations that are choppy. Mm -hmm. um, we feel choppy and we're putting out choppiness, you know? And so then how do we create a space of flow that you know, can help us and those around us to get unstuck. Um, so I, I think about these things a lot. Uh, and I think they really are essential to thinking about like, what kind of world are we creating? Mm -hmm. um, can it happen 
can the world we're dreaming of happen um, when we're in a state of, um, you know, uh, an inharmonious state? Um, and connecting that to, you know, can we gain liberation within the nation state, mm. um, within a racial capitalist state, within an imperialist state? I mean, um, I see those as parallel. Mm. Um, so, and then I, I, and then just going back to another part of liberation in relation to academia would go back to what I was mentioning about what I've recently been learning from Dean Spade about the working compulsively, working, working joyfully mm. um, and the way that we work, you know, the way that we approach work. And that's something I'm only learning about now. And I'm, I'm trying to delve deeper into that and integrate it more into our, into the workshop. Just the reality that, you know, doing scholarship in academia is brutal but doing scholarship doesn't have to be brutal, right. you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there's so much else, you know, that we can talk about. Uh, I think a lot about um, repression of our ideas, um, structural violence that seeks to make sure that our ideas, you know, don't grow. Um, so I think it's just important that to affirm that, you know, this is a battle, you know? Um, just to just to think and write on, on so many levels. Um, but at the same time, then we have to be intentional about how we then do this work because whatever, um, you know, this sort of like scientist of this type of thinking, uh, Joe Dispenza says, whatever you broadcast into the field is your experiment with destiny. Mm. You know, and, and, and those are the kinds of thinkers that I've been reading um, that I think play a big role in, in Liberate Your Research, um, which really is, is, in a way, a scientific approach to mind-body connection. And then I integrate that with collective approaches to healing that come from my own family history and indigenous ways of knowing, et cetera, um, around, you know, that w the types of healing practices we need to implement they're actually about changing our biological chemistry. Mm. Um, I mean, when I talk about changing our thoughts and our emotions, that's not gonna happen by saying an affirmation every morning. Mm -hmm. It's gonna happen by it, putting practices into play in our everyday lives throughout each day that can change the, you know, the biological makeup of our, the thoughts and emotions that uh, we hold that that have been shaped out of these experiences of trauma and then sort of affirm the thoughts and emotions that we want to align that that you know that can align with the future that we want for ourselves and even the present you know um, every vibration that we put out there is happening in the moment in the now too um, so we have it with us now not just for the future and we can create it for ourselves with each other those are some of the things that I that I care a lot about, you know. Um, and I know it can get a little, you know, I don't know, out there, but you know, I'd even be go so far as to say reclaiming the magic that we were born with, you know, mm -hmm. um, that you know is part of our histories and our communities and our movements that make us all really well resourced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, why are we giving that away? Um, and acting as if we're just starting from scratch and that we don't know anything. Um, so that, that's, I think, uh, this sort of like supporting people to 
tap into our abundance, our collective abundance. And, uh, and I'll just, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking, I'll, I guess to close it out, I've been thinking about this idea of like, how do we take responsibility for, for that change? Mm -hmm. And how do we write? I, I'm thinking of this like lately, like how do we write as we are? Mm, without mm. always having to feel like we're not good enough and it has to be good. And, and once we start going down that path, you know, we're in uh, obstructed space. Exactly. I mean, Nadine, this, you know, I, I just want to tell listeners that especially if we're trying to think of uh, uplifting, uh, you know, the knowledges and histories that come from the communities that we are accountable to and that we do research with and for, um, and we want to do, you know, research and, and survive in academia in ways that are joyful and are transformative and um, fierce, you know, in which the work is making a difference uh, and healing at the same time by the violence that the system perpetuates and also just creating alternative spaces to say, like, this is, this is, this is also knowledge and to legitimize that. Um, I encourage all the listeners... Um, especially those that are within academia uh, to book a workshop with Nadine. Um, so I encourage everyone to check out Nadine's website for more information at nadineneighbor.com. It's also going to be linked um, in the podcast description. So you can just click there and uh, access the website um, for more information and, uh, and then get in touch and uh, book these workshops institutionally as well. And also for those folks that are, part of the National Women's Studies Association, um, they're going to be also holding uh, one in March. So anybody that's affiliated with NWSA, um, you should also check um, check out or sign up to be part of the workshop. Um, Nadine, is there anything you wanna add to that? I know I uh, have just talked about how to reach you, but in case there are other forms that you would like folks to reach you at. Um, uh, well, if you uh, listeners are welcome to check out my website um, and contact me there, I'm more than happy to chat with you more about how you can liberate your research. Thank you. Um, other than that, I just want to thank you so much for, uh, you know, your time and the work that you're doing. This is such important work. Um, and I know it certainly has been really transformative for me. Um, the podcast was born after I took your workshop and um, yeah, my, my, my book project uh, started to kick off in really exciting ways. And I think there was a lot that was stuck, you know, within my heart. And I, I'm sharing that with listeners is that um, it took, it took, you know, uh, really thinking about the I believe statement or different parts of the workshop that, um, that has made me really let go of some of the really bad stuff that has happened to actually embrace and get into the actual work and people are feeling it. I'm feeling it. People are feeling it. So I'm just so grateful to you on a personal level, but I'm also grateful for you on a collective level because this is the kind of pedagogy uh, research methodology that we need for new radical books and, you know, uh, paper presentations and, and writing that we also want to read um, and have access to and all of all of this stuff. So Thank you so much, Nadine. Uh, again, truly an honor, uh, such a privilege and um, yeah. I'm so honored. You have no idea because I respect you so much and I learned so much from you and you're so principled and also 
you know, all the things you talked about being humble and brilliant at the same time and fierce and committing to changing these systems um, for, for collective people and collective liberation and love. Um, that's how I think of you. So thank you, Shani. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. If you'd like to learn more and engage with us, please check us out at www.liberationpedagogyproject.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.